This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello everyone, I'm here today with Alasdair MacLeod. Alasdair is the head of research at Gold Money and he's a very experienced investor. Alasdair, thank you for coming to this program. It's a pleasure to have you on. That's very much my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, could you please tell us a little bit about Gold Money? Well, Gold Money uh, basically acts as custodian for customers who want storage outside the banking sector around the world for precious metals. And uh, mostly it's gold, silver, platinum and palladium. And we also have a feature with gold, and that is that you can use your gold as, if you like, a feed for a debit card, which means that you can use effectively use gold as money, which of course was the original purpose of gold throughout history. That's what we do, and um, we've got customers all around the world. I don't know how much we've got in terms of assets under custody, but it's 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 well over a billion or a billion and a half dollars, something like that. Well done, well done. Now, I would like to start this by stating that at the end of last year, most people were sure we were entering a bear market. Stocks were crashing down, commodities were down, bonds were down, everything was down. Then comes January and the market is acting as if it were another great buying opportunity. So in your opinion, what has changed from the end of December to the beginning of this year, apart from obviously the Fed's capitulation? Well, I think the Fed's capitulation is really what it's all about. Um, in the last, I suppose, last quarter of last year, there were growing concerns that uh, the world was going to go into a recession and that uh, the Fed's raising of interests and tightening of its balance sheet would drag America into a recession. So, uh, you know, all stock markets were going down on that basis. The Fed then had, if you like, that Damascene conversion <laughs> and decided that it wasn't going to go quite so headlong into quantitative tightening. And um, everybody breathed a sigh of relief. I think that since then, the symptoms uh, coming from all major economies is a very, very rapid slowdown in growth, uh, with some economies going directly into recession, like the Italian, for example, in particular. Other, other economies like Germany's uh, have been impacted very, very badly by the slowdown in auto sales. China, of course, that had a real slowdown. Uh, and the Chinese are trying to get their economy recovering like mad with lots and lots of um, expansion of uh, the quantity of money. So what you've got now, I think, is you've got the secondary reaction of uh, generally central banks giving up the idea of tightening and going back into another period of easing. And that is really what has stimulated the recovery in uh, financial markets. I personally don't think it'll last terribly long. And the reason I don't think it'll last very long is that what we are seeing is the culmination of the credit cycle. And when you get to the end of the expansion phase of the credit cycle, you then enter the crisis phase. The other thing that's happened is that almost in a rerun of 1929, uh, when the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act was um, first passed by Congress, which made the stock market in America collapse, I mean, it was the October 1929, uh, when the market fell at one point over 30%, I think 34% was the worst. We've got exactly the same scenario today with uh, the end of the uh, credit cycle coinciding with trade uh, protectionism from America. 
And I think what we're seeing with America versus China, the Americans have embarked on this and are beginning to realize that actually <laughs> this idea of putting in tariffs to try and um, reduce uh, your trade deficit uh, actually does have unintended consequences. And uh, I think once the America-China thing is sort of, if you like, parked to one side, I think what we're likely to see is America have a go at the European Union and the European Union to respond with a go at uh, America. So we have got that combination, and it's a lethal combination of trade protectionism at the peak of the credit cycle. And that, to me, augurs lots of evil for 2019. Interesting. You you pay a lot of attention to the credit cycle in government finances, right? You, you actually mentioned the credit cycle a few times. And um, if I'm not mistaken, you actually don't think this is a business cycle, but a credit cycle, right? And having said that, where are we in this cycle? Are we close to another crisis? Do, do you see a recession in sight? Yes. Well, first of all, uh, it is a credit cycle. I rather cynically believe that the reason that economists generally refer to it as a business cycle uh, is because if you call it a business cycle, then the blame for it lies squarely on the shoulders of the market, not on the shoulders of the central banks where actually it should rest. That's why I call it a credit cycle. The credit cycle is created by central banks, expanding the quantity of money uh, and encouraging banks to, to increase the amount of bank credit earlier in the cycle, which creates unintended consequences later in the cycle and inevitably leads to tightening towards the end of the cycle, You know, which then sort of ends the cycle. You get the crisis stage. You find lots and lots of businesses go bust. If they're not supported, banks go bust. And then you're back into the beginning of the next cycle. So that is why it is a credit cycle. That's why I call it a credit cycle. Where we are, uh, I think we have just finished the expansionary phase of credit cycle, and we're now entering the crisis stage. We've seen economies just literally run into a brick wall. We have seen corporate loans, for example, uh, declining, particularly in the bond markets. There's, I mean, there have been times when investment grade and worse in terms of credit, the bond market have just seized up completely in, in late December. Now, that to me really does show that there is a, a very high level of dislocation in the credit markets. And that, again, you would expect to see uh, at the beginning of the crisis phase in the credit cycle. So that's really, I think, where we are. Okay. So do you believe interest rates will go up from here? Well, I think in the very short term, there is a possibility they will go down for the simple reason that uh, central banks are easing. They can't go very much lower. I mean, the, the Fed could reduce it a little bit, I suppose. But you've already got negative rates in um, three central banks, the Swiss, the ECB, and also the Bank of Japan. Of the other two majors, uh, the Fed is um, by far the highest level of interest rates compared with uh, the, the Bank of England, which, uh, again, is just sort of waiting waiting on the Brexit result, I guess, to a degree. So there's not a lot of downside in interest rates as such. But what we do see is we, we see kites being flown about you know new forms of credit expansion. Um, people are pushing the modern monetary theory, which is just a rehash of extreme inflationism from which, which really was uh, what killed Germany. I mean, Germany bought into the idea of inflationary financing before the First World War. And eventually, after they lost that war, it led to the complete collapse of the 
paper mark in 1923. So we're seeing all this sort of, you know, they're trying to sort of soften us up, I think, for yet more monetary inflation. And uh, it'll fail. It always does fail. Uh, and uh, consequently, so I think what you'll see is, first of all, interest rates would tend to soften, though they can't soften very far. I think the rate of price inflation is considerably higher than the statistics say. Uh, and uh, we will find that that begins to rise as a consequence of, the, of this extra tranche of monetary inflation on top of the monetary inflation from from the last crisis, the Lehman crisis, which actually hasn't been fully absorbed into the economy yet, the global economy, that is. So price inflation, interest rates then start having to go up. And I see that um, you know what has been commonly referred to as uh, sort of stagflationary uh, situation developing over the next two to three years. Interesting. That, that, that's actually a very interesting point of view, Alistair, because um, do you believe the rate of inflation is really that low? Because I, I joke in Brazil, prices always go up. The only thing that does not go up is the inflation rate. <laughs> and uh, just, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw one of the largest steel producers in Brazil decided to increase its price by 15% at the same day that the central bank was celebrating the lowest inflation rate for years. Right. So that, do you see inflation being downplayed around the world or is it just in brazil uh no it's not just in brazil in fact every government plays down the rate of inflation and if you if you look at america i mean they're, they're talking about what sort of two percent or something you know not too far from the target but actually if you look at the price of goods through something like the chapwood index that i think is a very good indicator of what's going on now the chapwood index was put together by a hedge fund manager and he got friends in 50 different cities in america to uh, monitor the prices of, I think, how many was it? I think it was 500 goods and services in each of those cities so that he could compile an index based on every city. Now, the rate of inflation that comes out, it varies obviously from city to city, but if you look at an average, it's probably around about 95 to 10% per annum and has been like that for at least the last five or six years. So the purchasing power of the dollar has fallen very substantially over the last five years, whereas if you look at the CPI, you'd say, well, you know, it's fallen by over the last five years, it's fallen by roughly eight or 9%. I mean, it, it really is. They are doing what the Argentine does, what Brazil does, what everybody does. Every government downplays the rate of inflation. Yeah. Um, so don't think that Brazil is alone in this. I tell you, there's some people with far greater street cred in terms of credit, global credit, doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> in fact, I don't think I could find a government that actually tells the truth with its statistics. Yeah, pretty much. What about gold? Uh, because uh, we saw if the Fed capitulates and um, it, it's going to be good for financial assets in general. Uh, gold is going up, but gold hasn't gone up in the last cycle, let's say in the last uh, three, four years. What's your view on gold? Well, I, I think I have to disagree with you. If you look at what gold has been doing in a wide range of currencies, actually gold has been hitting new highs. It's really only in the major currencies that this isn't true. It's done very well in, in sterling. I mean, I think we've gone up from something like, oh, I can't remember now, sort of 900 or something up to well over 1,000 or somewhere below 900 to well over 1,000 uh, per ounce. We've obviously seen the way the dollar's going. Um, the euro is gold has performed well in the euro so anyone living in the eurozone who bought gold for the right reason and that is it is superior form of money 
will be feeling uh, a lot more comfortable than the person who didn't. And it's even been going up in the yen recently, uh, you know, price in the yen. It, it is an interesting. I, I could, I'll tell a story which I think just rams the point home about gold. I first went to India in 1967, and the price of gold was roughly 180 rupees per ounce. Now, as we all know, the Indians are keen hoarders of gold, buyers of gold. And indeed, the women wear it. And, um, you know, if a man wants to sell some of the family gold, he's got to persuade the wife or the mother or mother-in-law to part with some jewellery. Not an easy task. So this is, this is, if you like, in India, this is the family pension fund. Now, from 1967, 180 rupees per ounce. Today, it is over 90,000. I defy anyone to find an asset in India which has outperformed gold, which has protected ordinary people in terms of their savings from the devaluation, the debasement of the rupee to the extent that gold has. That's what gold does, and that is the purpose of gold as far as money is concerned. And this is, I mean, here we are. I mean, you know, there's no point in talking about, you know, whether gold's gone up 3%, 5%. It's completely irrelevant. What we're really looking at is paper currencies going down, and we are on the verge of another round of currency debasement. So what do you do? You just hold gold. You don't speculate. In fact, the, 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 the least speculative position you can possibly have is to put all your assets into gold, because all the paper currencies are completely speculative in terms of their valuation. Sure. And, and do you have a view on gold stocks? Do, do you think they might go down with the market if the market decides to go down and, and starts crashing down? Or um, do you think they will follow gold? Well, going back to my um, stockbroking days, I mean, I, I should say that I, I never, ever give investment advice. But quite obviously, when the gold price goes better, it's the one way in which investment managers seek exposure to a rising gold price is um, through owning mining stocks and so on. Now, since I was a stockbroker, uh, ETFs have come to the fore. And that is another way in which investment managers hold it, basically because ETFs and mining stocks are uh, regulated investments. Physical gold is not a regulated investment. Commodities, physical commodities are exempt, if you like, from that regulation. And gold is exempt from being a regulated investment. So in a sense, all that money washing around the um, investment management industry, the easiest route for it to go is to go into things like gold mines if the investment manager believes that some exposure should be uh, had in that direction. And really, it's a pretty thin market. There are not all that many really good gold mines around. I mean, there's a lot of exploration rubbish. And I have no doubt that as the gold price rises, a lot of interest will focus on, you know, the sort of small company stuff. The only way you're going to make money there, I think, is really know your way in and out of the industry, know who's got the track record, know the geologists, know the good mine managers. I mean, there is a huge depth of knowledge that's really required to maximize the returns from gold mines. But it is there. I mean, I think um, I think someone who has that expertise can do immensely well. And certainly in the early stages of, uh, if you like, a, a bull market in the gold price, if you put it that way, I'd rather describe it the other way. In the early stages of a fall in the paper currency's purchasing power, I think you'll find that um, a lot of money will sort of initially go into the gold mining sector and also silver mines too. That's another, that's another thing. And the thing that's interesting in all this is that here we are, we're seeing the world 
threatened with a recession. I mean, there's no doubt about that at all. Yet at the same time, commodity prices are rising. Why is this? I mean, the only answer I can give is that it's the purchasing power of currencies that is falling, certainly measured in terms of commodity prices and raw materials. Interesting. And so, so you believe this uh, Fed, the, the next move for the Fed would be to ease? Yeah, I think probably because, uh, you know, as I say, I think the fear now is that uh, the US economy seems to be running into a brick wall. I mean, there were some sort of credit figures for January, uh, which I think were released this evening. And, and I mean, they were absolutely terrible. <laughs> so you can see, I mean, literally people have stopped spending for one reason or another. I mean, it's nobody knows. Nobody quite knows why. But what I would point to is that coincidence of the increase in trade protectionism at the top of the credit cycle. That is what happened in 1929. And that is what killed the market and uh, saw the Great Recession developed in the early 1930s. I mean, this to me has got um, sort of eerily, eerily similar uh, symptoms. Um, the difference, of course, is that instead of having currencies uh, uh, convertible into gold, as the dollar was in those days, fiat currencies are unbacked by anything. So the currency consequences of a really bad slump are very, very different from what they were in uh, 1929 to 1933. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, once these interviews from Ray Dalio, and he's not shy on saying that he sees similarities between now and the 30s. Uh, do you see them too? Yes, I do. Absolutely. I, in fact, um, I see it so eerily similar that I do find it very, very worrying. Uh, there are aspects of our current situation which are worse than the, in the 1930s, and particularly when it comes to government commitments. Because in the 1930s, the idea that the government was responsible for providing your welfare, looking after your health and doing all those things was in the very, very early stages. I mean, it hardly existed. And it was only because President Hoover tried to protect the farming industry from falling prices that, you know, government expenditure went up. This time, if you get a, a similar situation, not only will government costs rise, but the tax take to cover it will fall. So if you think that um, a budget deficit in the States of a trillion dollars is um, absolutely crazy. You ain't seen nothing yet. If we get a real slump, that's just going to go off the Richter scale. Yeah, for sure. But uh, but but who's going to buy the, the, the debt? The Fed will monetize it all? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, the, the, the Americans, I think, have been rather stupid in one sense, and that is they have relied on foreigners financing the deficit, the, the government deficit, uh, really through the results, if you like, the, the proceeds of their selling uh, uh, net imports into America. The other side being, you know, the capital, which has uh, been applied to financing the government's uh, deficit. Now what they've done is that basically they've um, upset all the foreigners. The foreigners are moving away from the dollar and particularly the Asian foreigners. Russia, you've seen what they've done with uh, their dollar reserves. China is reducing her exposure. We've got India is beginning to reduce her exposure. You have got, uh, obviously, Iran has... Um, reckons the dollar is the currency of the devil. You know, this is this is serious stuff. And I noticed that in the last tick data, this is the ownership of uh, US securities by foreigners, that fell in December by $91 billion. Now, this is at a time when that tick data should be rising in order 
to reflect, if you like, foreign demand for uh, U.S. treasuries. It's not. It's falling. And you've got a rising budget deficit. You have got the Fed trying to taper. I mean, there's something like $400 billion between the Fed's tapering and, I mean, that's obviously changed a little bit now, between the Fed's tapering and U.S. treasuries, sales of uh, U.S. treasuries, there's $400 billion a quarter has got to be absorbed in the domestic market. That's not good. No, not at all. And that could cause uh, rates to, to go up, right? Um, I think so. I mean, you, you have to ask yourself, with uh, so much supply of stock uh, and assuming that the Fed I think what the Fed will do is they will probably stop the, the, the tapering under those circumstances. Because, I mean, the whole point of tapering was to p prepare the balance sheet for the next credit crisis. And, uh, you know, if the credit crisis is on them, they have to stop the tapering. So, But even, even then, I, you know, you're going to get the foreigners selling the dollar at the same time as the U.S. government is trying to raise yet more money through, through the bond markets. And I, I can only see a, a disaster developing. And if the rates go up, what, what would be the impact on the European Union? Because the banks might suffer a lot, right? And, and I will go with uh, Italian banks, the Spanish banks. I, I would not even touch Deutsche Bank because it's, it's in itself another issue, right? Its derivatives position, is, if I'm not mistaken, is eight times the GDP of Germany. So good luck bailing that out. Yeah, we haven't even talked about uh, <laughs> derivatives. Let's keep that subject. Let's, let's park that subject to one side because, I mean, that's just too terrifying. <laughs> sure, because in Deutsche Bank is not alone. There's also uh, JP Morgan, who's not far behind in other banks. So, I mean, it could be a disaster. Yeah, I think, I mean, what I would say is that Mario Draghi has done a very good job of kicking the can down the road. And he's been able to do that basically because asset prices have not declined. Asset prices have risen. The market has bought into the idea that the ECB basically is rigging the market in favor of uh, higher bond prices, lower bond yields. Now, the moment the eurozone economy goes uh, seriously into reverse, uh, then that sort of put, if you like, the Draghi put is no longer going to apply. It, because, you know, you can do these things if the markets are favorable, but you can't do it if they're not favorable. And I think that's the development that we're going to see probably by the first half of this year. Alistair, you have mentioned a couple of times tariffs and Howard Marks has actually uh, released another another memo, which was quite interesting. Talking about tariffs and the impacts, uh, the unwanted impacts, the undesired effects of uh, of tariffs. And uh, one of the issues that he points out is the emergency of the far left. Uh, we've seen the US people like Bernie Sanders and uh, Ocasio-Cortez getting more and more attention. Uh, actually, for the first time ever, the youth in the US have a very favorable view of socialism. Do you think this is because of the actions of central banks? Um, I well, it's partly that. I would I would broaden it out, and I would say that it's it's the result of the complete failure of the current political system, and it's failed in two ways. It hasn't produced what um, is promised the electorate. Uh, you know, the idea that capitalism is going to make everybody sort of comfortable and all the rest of it. That is true, but of course, capitalism is not what we have. We have crony capitalism, and this is. Bad 
bad news because this is what people see. People see, you know, the captains of industry cuddling up to the politicians, putting money into the politicians' pockets one way or the other. It's the old thing um, they said in America a long time ago. As far as a businessman is concerned, a good politician is a bought politician who stays bought. <laughs> and, you know, unfortunately, that's what we've seen. So that, I think, is a large part of it. Now, on top of that, you've had the debasement of the currency. And people know they're being lied to about inflation, about jobs, about all those things. They know that the statistics that are coming out are just absolute rubbish. They're untrue. And it's got to the sort of point where, and it's no political adage, you can con some of the people some of the time, and all of the people some of the time, but you can't con all of the people all the time. And that's what we're finding out. Because the first thing that they do is they rebel against the establishment in America by electing Donald Trump. You know, now the rebellion is sort of going slightly the other way because, I, you know, I mean, Trump hasn't been an easy ride. And I think that, um, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting one because from my Twitter feed, I get quite a lot of response from America's Americans who do get very upset if I criticize Donald Trump. So there's a huge amount of tribalism involved in this. And I think that, um, you know, if you're a sort of soft left, if you like, typical Californian resident, perhaps, you look at... Um, what Trump's doing and all the rest of it. And along comes Bernie Sanders. And what he does is he basically promises you something for nothing. And you think, well, yeah, I think I, I think I go for that. I quite like the idea of, you know, getting my health looked after by the state and the state providing me with this and the state providing me with that. And you've got all these rich bastards who got loads and loads of money um, and they're not paying their taxes. And, um, you know, they should pay more tax and uh, they've got quite enough money to keep me going and keep people like me going. So you can see this sort of so a mixture of um, discontent, politics of envy, you know, give me a free ride. It's all that sort of stuff. That's on the left. That That's very, very much on the left. But I think the point about uh, socialism is that um, it's fine until the socialists run out of everybody's money. <laughs> and that's inevitably what happens. You just mentioned uh, con people and, uh, and you're in a perfect place now to talk about this, to so have a front seat in regard to the Brexit story. And I would like to know what the situation is and what the most likely outcome will be in your opinion. Is it going to happen? Well, if you've got a coin, <laughs> give it a toss, call heads or tails. That's about as accurate as you can get at this moment. Um, I, th I think... It, it's slightly more. It's slightly, it's slightly more complex than that. Actually, but it's a lot more complex than that. Um, th there's one thing which you've got to bear in mind, and that is that when um, Parliament voted to trigger Article 50, which basically is the uh, government sends a letter to the EU saying, in accordance with Article 50, we're hereby give notice that we're leaving the EU. Now, when that is accepted by the EU, then Article 50 is triggered. And we are leaving. It's actually as simple as that. Furthermore, because we have had to change a lot of our law, that has all been done as well. And we have primary legislation, which means legislation that can't be overturned by a vote in Parliament or anything like that. Primary legislation is in pass. It has been passed by MPs by a massive majority. And now what we have is we have the Remainers realising that this could lead to what they call a no deal, but actually it's WTO terms. WTO terms shouldn't frighten us at all. But government has invested an awful lot of um, 
time and effort into scaring people about leaving, you know, the European nanny, as it were, and going into the big wide world and maybe being eaten up by some hungry Chinaman or whatever. And, you know, the idea that the UK economy will have a very serious hit, sterling will go down, so interest rates might have to go up. I mean, all these scare stories were pushed out to try and persuade people not to vote for Brexit to begin with. And they've been resuscitated as the story has gone on. But the fact of the matter is, we are going out, unless the date is shifted, and it can be shifted, this is is possible, unless it's shifted from March the 29th, uh, we will be going out. It's quite simple, with or without a deal. And incidentally, the, the referendum for Brexit, there was no mention of a deal at all. So Brexit is actually out, quite simple. It's out politically and it's also out uh, economically. So very, very important point. The reason we're getting a lot of this sort of blowback at the moment is that the Remainers are trying very, very hard to overturn it and they are frightened that they won't succeed. Interesting. No, thank you for that. And uh, Alasdair, I, I know you do not give investment advice, but given everything we discussed, How would one position uh, his or her portfolio to profit from the outcomes you mentioned? If if you obviously don't want to be very specific, but uh, gold should be an important part of everyone's portfolio, right? And preferably physical gold outside of the banking system, right? Yes, I mean, physical gold outside the banking system. The problem with having gold in the banks is that the bank goes bust, you are a creditor. Now, you could go to a bank and ask them to store your gold on your behalf for safekeeping, in other words, for them to act as a custodian. But in the event of a banking smash, would you really trust the banks or the liquidator of the banks to ensure that your assets are separate from the bank's assets, it is your property, and hand it back to you? Well, it's a big ask. I don't think I would risk it personally. So this is the whole point behind gold money. We are not a bank. We act purely as custodians. We don't take positions in things other than purely our own capital. I mean, we do, you know, sort of have a stock of gold or whatever. Um, from time to time. And also we've got an associated company called Mene, where we store gold for that. So yes, I mean, we do store gold for ourselves as well as our customers. But the point is that our customers have uh, bailment, as it were. <laughs> that's, that's, I think, is a technical term. So that's, that is why we exist. And, and if you like, if you think there's a very high probability that paper currencies will fall apart, then either gold money or someone like us is someone that you should look at to store gold. Uh, you can store some at home, obviously, and I would I would personally uh, look to store things like uh, coins, gold coins. I mean, in the UK, sovereigns. Sovereigns have the advantage that they are tax-free. The profits on them are tax-free. Krugerrands, obviously. Things like that. So, you know, a bit of a spare change, as it were, around the house is a good idea. But if you're talking about serious money, then you do need to store it in a secure vault against those rotten times. But coming back to your question, I can answer your question without giving investment advice. That is to repeat what happened in Germany between 1920 and 1923. Now, the hyperinflation actually started in roughly May 1923. And it was at that point that people finally began to understand that the paper mark was actually worthless. And so they started getting rid of the paper mark as quickly as they could to buy anything. At that time, if you were a foreign student, say, studying at Ber- in Berlin or um, 
one of the major universities, Dresden or somewhere like that, and you were being sent an allowance by your parents, say from America, the dollars that you were getting were as good as gold because they were exchangeable into gold at that time. Now, what these foreign students were able to do out of the spare change from their allowance sent by mummy and daddy from New York or whatever, they could actually buy properties. They could buy houses. Now, house prices, if you like, measured in paper marks, went through the absolute roof. But the point is that the best asset of all to hold under those circumstances was hard currency. And in that case, we're talking about uh, hard currency that was fully backed by gold, convertible into gold, was as good as gold, if you like, in terms of uh, buying things in the street. So I think you take your cue from that. All other assets um, will perform with varying degrees, but the best is going to be gold if we have a hyperinflationary situation developing. You, you not even need to go back that long in history. You can look at Venezuela today and what gold has done there. Yeah, precisely. And in Zimbabwe. <laughs> uh, yeah, as well. <laughs> But out there, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. That's very much my pleasure, Marcelo. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. <laughs>